Um, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Okay, so this is the third talk for the Back to, Back, uh, Back to Basics series. So we had one talk by Father Michael, which was the first, seri- uh, the first talk, and he was talking about creation and creation out of nothing and the implications of what that means for us as the created beings. Uh, the second topic was the glory of God's creation, which was last week's topic in which we talked about what it means to be the glory of God's creation. We talked about image, we talked about likeness, uh, and, and what each of those mean. And then we also talked about um, the fall and sin and what the implications of sin were on our nature. So that's last week. So this week, the topic is the mystery of salvation. So it's a natural progression from last week's talk and the week before, in the sense that you know man was created at a, at a you know, to be the glory of God, um, and as a consequence of the fall, uh, nature was diseased or corrupted, um, and there was a need for salvation. And so tonight's talk is about salvation. I wanted to, ta- to start the talk with a, um, an illustration, right? Bear with me. Pretend that there's something right here that's invisible, standing right next to me. Pretend there's an object that's invisible, Right? Uh, you can't get up and touch it. You can't smell it, you can't taste it, you can't use any of your senses to learn more about this object. So what are some of the ways that we can know more about this object? What is something we can do to learn more about this object? It's invisible, so you can't see it. What, what can we do about that? We can read about it, except we don't know what it is, but we can read about it. Yeah, good point. What about something practical? What can I do to make it appear before my eyes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so Mary Shemelli's answer was throw flour on it. <laughs> Not bad, it works. I was thinking more like uh, grab a sheet or grab a veil and put the veil over the object. It's not very Hollywood, I mean. It's, it's not, yeah, sorry. <laughs> and what tends to happen when we throw the veil over the object? We start to get a better idea of what that object is, right? So we, we still don't know what it is, but we know that it's a certain shape, it's a certain size, we know dimensions, we know specific features, like has it sharp, got sharp ends, has it got you know, rounded ends, or whatever. Um, but it reveals a little bit more about the object for us. But what else does it tell us by throwing a veil over this object? That it's tangible? That it's tangible? Yep, yeah, that's a good point, sorry. But what, what I was more thinking about is it, it also tells us how much we don't know about this object. We still can't see the object, the only thing we know about this object, we know through the fact that it's covered. And that's as far as our knowledge goes. I just wanted to start with this illustration because it's, it's a good way to look at the, the mysteries of the church. Right? So, um, our holy sacraments, which we call mysteries, are mysteries for that very reason. They're just like this object. Um, prayer is a mystery. The great mystery of salvation, which we're talking about now, is a mystery. In the sense that we can't see it, we don't know very much about it, but the only only bits of information that we know about it, we know through our holy tradition, we know through the Bible, and we know through these means, which to us is similar to the veil that we've just put over the object. I guess the reason I'm trying to say all this is because it's extremely difficult to talk about something when we know that it's a mystery. It's a mystery of God, right? Anything that I say tonight, anything that we can discuss tonight is going to fall short of the glory of this mystery. Yeah? 
And that's what tonight's about. Tonight we're going to talk about salvation, which is, which is fantastic for us as humans because we are in need of salvation. But as much as we talk about salvation, we're still going to fall short of the glory of salvation. Now, when, when we, look at, um, we look at the Bible and we, we read references to Christ and references to Christ's salvation, we get a sense that there's many different ways to talk about salvation. There's many different ways that which we can understand salvation. Um, when we look at the writings of the church fathers, we get the same sense. Some fathers talk about salvation in this manner, some talk about it in that manner. Some are very allegorical, some are very sort of literal. That's the way they understood it. Um, and so there's, there's, there's so many ways we can look at salvation, salvation of Christ for our sake. Even the creed, you know, the creed that we recite in every liturgy and in, and in most of our um, services, this is what it says about salvation. Speaking, referring to Christ, it says, Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and of the Virgin Mary and became men. That's it. That's as far as we know. Not much, right? In the ecumenical councils as well, there's not a decree of what salvation is. Um, so I thought tonight we can look at salvation from different views, from what the different churches, um, or, or how the different churches viewed salvation, um, and how we as Orthodox Christians would view salvation. But again, all these metaphors, all these models, all these examples, um, they will fall short. I just want to stress that. They'll fall short because we're trying to describe something which is incomprehensible. But before we start, we know that Christ was incarnate. We know he suffered. We know he died for our, for our salvation. And we know he's, he resurrected and he ascended. But what is it about, or what, why is it that Christ needed to die? Right? Last week we talked about the whole notion of sin and what it did to us. Um, now, I just wanted to look at Christ as being um, the sacrifice. You know, throughout the Old Testament, especially in the first five books of Moses, there's a massive emphasis on sacrifice, right? Animal sacrifices. And, and for every act or every sin or every transgression, there's a way or, or a method to sacrifice, right? And then you look at St. John's Gospel and the other Gospels, but particularly St. John's Gospel. And what is the first thing we hear about Christ? Does anybody know? St. John the Baptist. He sees Christ from a distance, and what is the first thing he says? Behold the, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? So the very beginning of the Gospel begins with this imagery or this depiction that Christ is a sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God. He's our Paschal Lamb. He's our Passover Lamb. And then that theme is carried throughout the gospel, and then what happens at the end of the gospel? We see that Christ becomes the Passover lamb in the sense that he gets sacrificed on Passover, he gets crucified, um, so he, he is our Passover lamb, right? But why did Christ need to go through all that? Why did he need to incarnate and, get, and, and become man and go through all these acts of salvation, salvific acts, um, for our sake? And this is what St. Athanasius, this is how St. Athanasius sort of looks at it. Guys, if you want, um, there's sheets somewhere, if somebody can pass them around. So this is 
what Saint Athanasius has to say. This is point number two in your, um, in your handout. Saint Athanasius, in this book, by the way, on the Incarnation, right? This book. We'll talk about it a bit later. What he does was, he looks at the situation, and he, he describes God as looking down on earth, seeing the, uh, the dire situation of man. Thanks, man. Do I need the mic, or you guys? Okay. He looks at the, at the dire situation of men. He sees that sin has entered into the world and has plagued the world, and he sees where man is heading, down the road of destruction. And St. Athanasius describes God as sitting, as, as, as beholding man and thinking to himself, what must I do? And so St. Athanasius ends with this question for that, for that passage. What was God to do? He asked this rhetorically in the sense that God stood there and watched his, the glory of his creation head down a path of death and there was something that had to be done and then St. Athanasius goes on to talk about, well, what had to be done is his incarnation, the premise of the whole book, right? This is what we're told in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all had sinned. Okay? So point number three on your handout. We all agree that Christ is our Savior. And as Christians, not just as Orthodox Christians, but us, um, we've got the Protestant Christians, we've got the Catholics and so forth. Everybody, everybody agrees on this one particular point, right? Which is good. We find a common place, which is in Christ. Is that our Lord came into this world for no other reason than to save us as Christians. Okay? We agree that sin separates man from God um, and that Christ was the one who was able to reverse that separation, to reunite man and God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, we're told, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And St. Gregory of Nazianzen has, has something beautiful to say. He says, nothing can equal the miracle of my salvation. He's reflecting on, on Christ's um, salvation. He says, nothing can equal the miracle of my salvation. A few drops of blood recreate the whole world. And notice how St. Gregory looks at, at Christ's salvation and he, he says that it's not just for him, it's for the whole world. All right? And this is, this is something that we do believe. Okay, so in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, all of us. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, God desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. It doesn't get more clear than that. So salvation, extended, salvation extends through Christ to every single person, but it is up to us using our freedom to choose, our free will, whether to accept this salvation, to accept this act of sacrifice that God has offered, or to reject it. And that's, that's our, our free choice. St. Augustine has this to say. He says, God made you without your agreeing to that, but he will not save you without your consent. Right? Okay, so far so good. We know why Christ was incarnate. We know why he died. He died for us. He, he died to reunite man to God. Right? Now let's look at some of the ways in which um, salvation can be viewed, the different models by which we can view salvation. Again, remember that there'll be 
st strong points for each, each model, but there will also be some shortfalls to every model. All right, and don't get caught up with the names. I know some of the names, I can barely even read some of these names, the titles of the models. Don't worry so much about that. The idea is to get the way in which the different churches look at salvation. So model number one, which is in your handout. In this model, this is what happens. Man was created by God, created to be good, created to live in unity with God. And then what happens? God has set forth a law for man. Man falls into temptation and sins. Man breaks that law. Um, and so he's caused that separation between himself and God. Now what's required in this particular model is that God, because of his justice, he needs things to be made right. He needs a payment for this um, offence, right? It's a very legalistic way of looking at it, but, but essentially it's like me going and stealing money and I get caught red-handed and then um, I go to the judge and the judge basically says, well, you stole $1,000. Are you able to repay that money back? If I say yes, then I repay the money back and well, the idea is it ends there. Um, but in our legal system, <laughs> it's just the beginning. But according to this model, what God required was a repayment of that sin in the sense that Adam sinned and humanity sinned. What's required now is a man or a woman, a human, to live the life that they were intended to live, that is, a life without sin. Of course, we are all sinners as a result of the fall, and so this is where Christ comes in. Christ comes in, he lives, he becomes incarnate, he becomes fully human, takes on our fallen nature, our nature that's inclined to sin, but he resists sin and he lives a righteous life, and that satisfies God. According to this model, that satisfies God. But then Christ takes it a step further. Christ goes on to even die as a sacrifice for us as, 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 as his humanity. Okay? So this is why um, this, um, this model is called the satisfaction model, because Christ came to earth to satisfy the request and to satisfy God's justice and to, to appease God, in a sense. Do you remember last week we were talking about sin? Um, from a w Sorry, I Look, as, as far as I understand from this model, yes, what was required was a, payment, uh, uh, was a payment by a human being to live the life that God has intended for that man to live, a sinless life or for, for that woman as well. I'm not, uh, it's not just men, <laughs> right? So that's what was required. But Christ, out of his love for mankind, went a step further in the sense that he even died as a sacrifice for our sake. So he even, like, he went down, he came down to earth to save humanity, but as a result, humanity even sa sacrificed Christ, and that was the step further that he took. He went a step further than what was required, according to this model. Great question, because the next model will, will cover that. Now, this model, does that make sense? Does everybody understand where I'm heading with this? Okay. So this model is the, um, it's called the satisfaction model, as I said. It was initiated by St. Augustine, St. Augustine's idea of sin. Remember, we were talking about that last week, um, in the sense that it's a very legalistic um, view of sin, 
in the, in that, that God has created man good. Man offended God by sinning and separated from God. And so in the, in, it's like a, a way to repay is to, sorry, a way to appease God is to um, repay what was done as, an, as a result of this sin. As I said, this uh, model commenced with St. Augustine. It, um, it progressed with St. Anselm, um, who's, a, who's a Catholic uh, saint, and then it progressed towards uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. I don't, you might have heard of these names. But anyway, through the Middle Ages, and so now it's the Catholic view. This is the, the Catholic Church's view on sin and salvation. What are the limitations of this model? Can anybody think of what the limitations of this model are? What does it fall short? Were you going to say something? Okay, excellent. So it looks, it, 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 yeah, that's a very good point. So it depicts God as, um, as a God who is more concerned about his honor, more concerned about his justice, than about love. All of our orthodox theology can be summed up in one phrase. Does anybody know what that phrase is? God is love. If you were to, to, to summarize the Bible in three words, it would be God is love. If you were to look at all of our liturgical prayers, in summary, it'll be God is love. God is love is, encompasses all of our understanding. This particular model doesn't refer to God, doesn't view God, or doesn't depict God as love in that sense, right? It depicts God as a Lord who needs to be appeased by justice, he needs um, repayment, and he needs it done regardless of who that person is, and it and ended up being his only son. What's interesting about this model as well is it's not found in any of the early church fathers. So the Greek fathers do not speak in this way, as such, they do allude to sin being a crime and so forth, and we'll talk about that later, but they don't, they don't talk about this particular way of viewing salvation. Um, the Latin fathers as well do not view it this way, um, but it's only after St. Augustine that it sort of progresses and, and um, takes form. Anyway, model number two. I'm not trying to dwell on the models, but I just want to, to get you to think about what these other models are. In the sense that the reason I'm doing this is not to bore you to death. I'm sorry if I do. <laughs> but the idea about this is I want you to see how the other churches view sin and view salvation. Because I think, personally, it gives me an, an appreciation of, um, of our orthodox view. And I, and I hope we'll come to that. The second model, it takes the satisfaction um, theory a step further. And, and Miriam alluded to this, which is great. So in the first model... Um, man breaks the law, and God says, I require a payment for this law. Being the just judge that I am, you either live the, the righteous life you are called to live, or the, the penalty is death. In this model, um, there is no either or. In this model, man sinned against God, they offended God, and the penalty is death. There's no other way to make it right. right? Um, it suggests that Christ, by his own sacrificial choice, was punished, and this is where we get the name penal, penalized, he was penalized, in the place of sinners, so as a substitute for you and I as sinners, and thus he satisfied God's justice and pleased God. And this is where the name penal substitution comes in, not to worry about the name, but that's where it comes in. So God sends his son into the world, and as a human, he takes our form, he takes our humanity, he takes our um, inclination to sin, but he lives the life that we were intended to live. And not just that, he pays the ultimate price, he actually bears the sins of the world, he becomes sin, he becomes the sinner, and he gets sacrificed, he gets put to death 
for that sin. So he's paid the price so that you and I can return to God and live a life of unity with God. What are the limitations to this model? Can you think of that? Say that louder, please. It portrays God as punitive. Okay, excellent. Yes. So it's very similar to the previous model in the sense that God is, forgive me, but almost an angry overlord, an angry lord who, who needs to be appeased, who needs to be pleased, and again, he'll send his only son into the world you know, to pay the price. It's more about God's honour than about God's love. What else? There's actually an underlying problem with this model and the previous model that's a little bit dangerous in terms of our Trinitarian theology. What is it? What is it? What does it suggest almost? Oh yeah, yeah. You're actually you're almost, yeah. You're pretty much there. What it suggests is that God the Father and God the Son are not are not united. You know, when we think of the Trinity, we think of one God. They are united in every sense of the way, right? But in this particular model, it looks as if God the Father is is disgraced, disgraced by his honor. His honor is he's been dishonored, and so the Son says, "Well, I'll go down. I'll appease you." Like so, it's almost like they've got different thoughts about salvation. You're spot on, men. But because of our understanding of the Holy Trinity, we know that there's no separation between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one God, right? Now we move on to model three. Is there any questions? Are there any questions? All good? Yeah, so, so, okay, so model one, we said, was the Catholic view, and in that view, um, there was two options to please God. Either you pay the price, which is to live a, a sinless life, the life that was intended, or the penalty is death. So these were the only two ways out. In the second model, the penal substitution, um, there is no two options. Man had sinned, man offended God, and as a result, man was sentenced to death. You commit the crime, you do the time. Is that right? <laughs> yes. See the difference? Does that make sense? Mina? Does, does model two expect Christ to die? Yes. Model two, someone had to pay for this sin, and Christ um, sacrificially um, gets, becomes incarnate for that reason. We talked about the limitations of this model. What is this model about? This model is actually, um, it's the Reformed view. So it's the Protestant view, essentially. right? And, and it's an overgeneralization, so I apologize, but it's, generally speaking, it's the Protestant view. And again, you'll get different views beneath that view. There's so many models, so this is just a, a gross overgeneralization. Okay, model three. Model three. This model now, we're talking about a totally different approach to Christ as our Savior, right? Uh, yep, so it's, on, it's point number six on your handout. Um, this is one of the oldest models that we've got, that we know of, because we know so many of the early church fathers speak this way, right? And not just that, this is the early... Uh, that We call it the formation of Christian theology. Like This is the way the early church started to understand who Christ is, how Christ lived, and why he did what he did, and so forth. All right? The purpose of this, um, of this model is to emphasize 
um, Christ as the example, the ultimate example for us. So it speaks of Christ's incarnation, and it speaks particularly of Christ's ministry on earth. So it looks at Christ as a teacher, it looks, looks at Christ as a servant, it looks at the moral example that Christ set for us. We were supposed to live this, this un- life united with God. We were unable to, and so the only way God can, or, or a way that God can teach us the ways of salvation is to send His only Son into the world to teach us how to live so that we can emulate Him, we can copy um, Jesus Christ, and as a result, um, day by day, through the grace of God, we become more like Christ, and in that way, we reunite with the Father. Um, This is called the moral theory, or the example theory, because Christ is the example, and we're just following him. So through Christ's teachings, through his miracles, through his, um, even through his rebukes, we, we start to understand a little bit more about who God is and how we can bridge that gap between God and humanity. What are the limitations of this model? Can you, can anybody guess what the limitations of this model are? You are on the ball tonight. Yes. (laughs) Well, yes. So it focus, It focuses on Christ's ministry on earth, which is fantastic. That is very important for us. But it doesn't focus on the cross. It doesn't focus on Christ's salvation. It doesn't focus on Christ's death, right? We, as as Orthodox Christians, the only way we see Christ is through the lens of the cross. There's no other way around it. For us, Christ is the Lamb of God, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, we are told, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So this verse equates the cross as being the, the power of God. You can't take away the cross and, and just look at Christ. You're not getting the full picture. I'm not getting the full picture. You know what's interesting? Um, when Christ in... in um, when Christ was speaking to St. Peter and he explained to St. Peter what was about to come, he explained to him that he will die um, and his, his passion and so forth. Do you, do you, do you remember what St. Peter's response was? Does anybody remember what St. Peter's response was? Does St. Peter go, go for it, Lord, <laughs> as long as it's, short, it's you, not me? What does he say? Does anybody remember? He says, far be it from you, Lord. Right? Does anybody remember Christ's response? Because St. Peter was really big nice, right? St. Peter was saying, Lord, this is the last thing I want for you. The last thing I want for you is to go and die um, and become a sacrifice, to die on the cross. What does Christ say? Yeah. Get behind me, Satan. Absolutely. Get behind me, Satan. What a harsh response. Do you guys agree? Isn't that a harsh response? But you know, the, um, some of the, the early um, contemplations on this, the early church fathers' contemplations on this, is that Christ wasn't rebuking St. Peter in the sense that he was telling him, you know, you're Satan. After, after years of ministry, Christ is not going to turn around and say to St. Peter, what, do you, what have I taught you? You are Satan. But Christ is trying to emphasize that anybody, anybody who tries to separate Christ from the cross is who? Is none other than the devil, 
right? So we cannot separate Christ from the, from the cross. So this model is very important for us as Orthodox Christians, and we'll see why. But let's look at the next model. In Mark chapter 10, so this is model 4. I think it's number 7 on your handout. Number 7. Again, this is another ancient model or ancient metaphor for salvation. Um, In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we are told, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The basic theme, the basic underlying theme of this particular model is freedom. Previously, we were enslaved to sin and to the power of darkness, but through Christ, we have become liberated. We have become free. This is the underlying theme. So in this model, humanity sins, right? And as a result of that sin, we sell ourselves over to the power of darkness. We no longer belong to the kingdom of God, but we have rather run to the kingdom of darkness. This is the way this model looks at it. So what happens then? Christ, of course, seeing our, our, um, our path to destruction, he becomes incarnate in order to um, show us the way through his ministry, through his miracles, through his teachings, and through his life. Um, and, and he does all this, right? But then, um, what happens at the end of that, at the end of his ministry? He dies on the cross. And just like everybody else who died before Christ died, he um, was buried. He, um, he descended into Hades. But because Christ is not like anybody else who died before him, what happens? What do you guys think happens? Sorry? Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't stay there. <laughs> Good answer. Right. So yes, he he's he offers his life as a ransom. That's what happens. He he dies on the cross. Uh, he is buried. But death cannot contain the author of life. Darkness cannot contain the source of light. And so what happens? He resurrects. He is victorious over death. He is victorious over Satan and his powers. Um, by the way, another name for this model is Christ the Victorious, for, for obvious reasons, right? Um, but there are limitations to this model as well. What do you guys think the limitations to this model are? This is the tough question. It's, it's tough to understand and it's tough to explain. I'll give, you an, I'll give you a clue. It's got to do something with ransom. What does the word ransom mean? Sorry, Mo, what did you say? Yeah, it's when, <laughs> it's when you pay something to someone for something. Is that what you said? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> you should come but and stand up here. It's more than that. It's a, it's a demand made by an evil person who kidnapped another person for a ransom to return that the kidnapped to you, I suppose. Okay, yeah, excellent. You said we were held hostage by sin, by the devil. Right. So did the devil request this death as ransom? Okay, very good question. The ransom, was it paid to God or was it paid to the devil? Well, it wasn't paid to humanity. We can rule that out. Was the ransom paid to God or was it paid to the devil? There's really no other options. What do you guys think? 
Sorry? Yeah? Do you want to elaborate? Okay so, okay, so if we say that the ransom was paid to the devil, then we're actually giving authority to the devil, which he quite frankly does not have. According to our understanding of the Bible and according to our understand of, uh, understanding of the devil, we know that he absolutely does not have any authority over you and I. Um, and God, quite frankly, does not owe the devil anything. Right? Yeah? Does it make sense? Right. What about God, the Father? Okay, that's a very good way to look at it. Absolutely. Did you guys hear that? Um, Mary is saying that if you... Say it again. <laughs> if you imply that the if, ransom was paid to God, God the Father... If asking for the ransom, then the implication is that God was holding us hostage and that's not possible. Trust a lawyer to come up with this uh, response. Excellent. Okay, so if you, if you say that the ransom was paid to God the Father, then what are we doing? We're going back to the previous limitations of the other models in which we're describing God as a just judge, as a, as a, as a God who does not care so much for our freedom and our liberation, but cares rather for his justice to be served. Is that, is that essentially what you're saying? That's a very good question. Excellent. Now we're digging deeper. So what is St. Mark referring to then with this word ransom? What is St. Mark referring to with this word ransom? Are we misunderstanding the verse? Are we to take this verse literally? We need to go back to the original. The original word is uh, ransom. It definitely means ransom. But, um, but remember what we were talking about in the beginning of the talk, in the sense that these models are definitely going to fall short when we're talking about a mystery. So the only way we can understand these mysteries is, is through simple words. And St. Saint Mark refers to this as a ransom, refers to Christ's life as being a ransom, paid for, paid, it doesn't say to who. We are not to understand this as a ransom paid to God or the devil. That's, not, that's where the uh, metaphor stops. If, if St. Mark was to refer to who it was paid for, yep, let's, let's focus on that. But St. Mark stops there, and I'm sure that's um, you know, um, the divine intervention, intervention or um, God's input into this, into this verse. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, that's the idea of this model. And that's, that's not what... Um, so I agree with you totally. I don't agree about the apple because that's... Uh, I don't think it was an apple that Adam and Eve ate. But that's a different discussion. What, what we're trying to get to tonight is, is not about the, the idea. The idea we totally agree with. It's biblical, as, as I just read. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Thanks, man. What we're talking about is this idea of ransom. And I think, and this is sort of the understanding, is that it's not about who the ransom is paid to. It's more about the fact that this was um, the price to be paid. So when we talk about ransom, in our view, we talk about this sense that, you know, 
I have to pay a ransom to somebody for something, to let something go or to, to repay something. But in this particular sense, it's a ransom paid on our behalf, and that's where the model stops. Okay? Yeah, the, the, metaphor, the metaphor is in St. Mark's Gospel, so we're looking at it from Christ's point of view. We're not looking at it from the Old Testament point of view. But, yes, absolutely, Christ's, um, Christ's salvation is a sacrifice. And when we look back at the Old Testament, we see Christ in every one of those sacrifices. Every one of those sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament um, bear Christ's um, initials, bear Christ's name in the sense that they are foreshadowing the salvation that is to come, right? So we're not, we're not arguing that point, but what we're trying to say is that it wasn't a ransom paid to this person or that person, or sorry, to this God or to the devil. That's, not where, that's where the model falls short. That's where we should stop looking at the concept of ransom, right? Now, the idea of the Old Testament sacrifice is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a quite different to Christ's sacrifice, and we can talk a little bit about that maybe at the end if we've got time. But there's a, there's a huge difference in the sense that, um, you know, in the Old Testament we're looking at... Okay, so in the Old Testament you look at this idea of blood. And, and God emphasizes blood and the importance of blood, starting from Cain and Abel. And that blood has, carries life. And so then when we get to the sacrifices, it's not about the pain, it's not about appeasing God by killing a cow. I don't think God, God cares for the, for the blood of a cow. But what God is trying to emphasize or trying to portray to us now that we're looking back through the lens of the cross is that these sacrifices resemble God. Blood resembles life. So in fact, we're not sacrificing in the Old Testament. We're not sacrificing to appease God, to make God happy, to make God look away while we sin. No, we're sacrificing as a sense to say that because of my sin, Lord, I am, I am giving you the gift of a life in order to forgive my sins. Does that make sense? Okay. If I go on a tangent, just pull me back. Cause, but it's a it's a good good question. Very good question. Any other questions? All good. Okay. I said another name for this model was the Christ victorious model, and we can see why that is. We don't need to go into that. Um, now, what I wanted to emphasize is that this model, the ransom model, it's called, is an ancient model. The example theory or the example model or the moral example, I'm starting to confuse myself, is also an ancient model. Now, when we look at the two models together, when we start to combine the two, that's when we start to understand how the church is viewing salvation, particularly our church. We know how the Catholic church views salvation. We know how the Protestant church um, churches view salvation. Now, when we combine these two models together, we start to think in the... In the, in the through the mind of the church, right? And what's interesting is that these two models are very, very different to the first two models. They, they look at salvation from a totally different angle, right? Not to say that one's right and one's wrong. I'm not trying to tell you that, you know, do not look at you know, salvation in this view, but our church has wisdom in viewing salvation from this angle, from this lens, from the lens of the cross, and we'll see um, what exactly our church, how our church looks at salvation. So in point number eight, that's where we start to look at our orthodox idea, our orthodox mind, our orthodox view of salvation.
So the Orthodox Church therefore sees God more as the compassionate physician, right? Rather than a judge. Sin is not then a crime, but what is sin? Someone, I think someone said it. An illness or a disease, right? And um, it's, <laughs> it's a disease that we have chosen out of our free will, right? God is not offended by sin, as in the previous, uh, the, the, the two models that we um, initially um, looked at, um, but rather he weeps over it, right? It is the corruption of this perfect human being that our, our God set out to create. Remember, we are talking about the glory of God's creation last week? This is what God had in mind when he created you and I. And so then, his goal wasn't to punish you and I, but his goal is to heal you and I, to restore us to that original state, to restore us to his, his image, to restore us to his likeness. And this explains beautifully why God couldn't just forgive us. Because you know, if we're saying that God is not so concerned with his justice, why couldn't he just forgive us? Why couldn't he just say, all right, don't do it again, and look the other way? Why couldn't God just do that? Okay, yes. So that's another mystery. How could God be fully just and fully merciful? Beautiful. But that's not what I'm getting to. Why did God not just forgive the sin and let it go? Okay, imagine... Sorry, Paul. Uh, yeah, okay, yes, that's a very good way to look at it. That's not exactly what I had in mind. You, you were, the verse is spot on, um, but that's not what I was thinking of. But yes, it's a very good point. I think we would still be separated from God. Yes, yes. So what, like Paulie said, that verse says, if you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And like Miriam said, we can be forgiven for that sin, but then what happens to me as a fallen human, as a fallen person? is I still have this inclination to sin. So God can forgive me day in, day out, but at the end of the day, I am going to separate from God because I have an inclination to sin and I have an inclination to serve a master who is not God, but who is the guy inside, who is my ego, right? So that's, that's why God couldn't just forgive us. And God does forgive us, and we'll see that we are forgiven every time we repent, every time we confess. There is an avenue for forgiveness. But that doesn't mean that God could have just looked away and pretended this never happened. Okay? So what's the limitation of this year? Sorry? What's the limitation of this year? Okay. Yeah. No, no, this is the Orthodox view. Right. No, so the limitation, it's not the limitation. Again, we fall short of trying to explain this great mystery. But the the beauty of the Orthodox Church in holding this view is that it combines... um, two views, two particular views, which is the ransom view and the moral um, example view, it, it moulds them together and it sees, it starts to see Christ not as a just judge, not as a stern sort of God who's out to, to correct his, our ways by punishing us, but rather we start to look at God as at this, this great physician, right? And even, it's interesting, the fathers of the church, the way they talk about even the Eucharist. Has, does anybody know what some of the fathers call the Eucharist? The medicine, does it, has anybody heard this term? The medicine of immortality. So they look at God as this beautiful physician, as this, as this the ultimate physician who's out to correct our ways and who's out to, to, to rid us of this disease which is called sin. And through doing so, he's instituted 
these mysteries in the church. And one of these mysteries, the Eucharist, which is partaking of the body and of the blood of Christ, the fathers of the church call this the, the medicine of immortality. So can you see now that the, from the early Christians until now, the Orthodox Church has got a certain understanding. It's, it's the mind of the church. It's called fromena in the, in the Greek, in the sense that it's, um, it's how the church, or, or, or the noose, have you heard of the noose? It's like how the church, with its heart and mind, understood Christ, or viewed Christ, right? Again, we'll still fall short of that, of who Christ is and who, um, and what the mystery of salvation is, but that's how we view God, uh, God and Christ and his salvation. Any other questions? <laughs> okay. Can I just ask, when, like, the way orthodoxy treats sin as being an illness versus others treating it as it being a crime, illness can sometimes suggest that like, people get ill without it being their own fault. Yeah. So doesn't inducting someone into orthodoxy can sometimes mislead them to believe that sin may not be their fault? Yeah. Yeah. The others that treat it as a crime where people are intentional with steals or killing. Yeah. So it implies yeah. that it's a hundred percent your capable decision to be doing something wrong. Um, you know, I was, I was telling you that sin is a disease, but it, it's one that we took upon ourselves through our own freedom. That's, that's the way, again, we're looking at models. We're not looking, we're not defining. Um, this is only our limited understanding of what sin is, what salvation is. Yeah? So, and, and interestingly, the, the fathers of the church don't just look at Christ as being the ultimate physician and us being um, sick and in need of salvation, in need of healing, right? Some fathers talk about sin as, um, as an offence. Some, some fathers talk about God as being a judge. And even in our liturgical um, prayers, you're going to find the emphasis is going to be on Christ being the healer, Christ being the physician. But you also find um, aspects of the other models in the sense that we look at Christ as being a judge. We look at sin as being an offence to God. So, so all, these, all these models are found in the church, but the but we have to understand that, that that's not the way we explain or we understand salvation. That's a way of, um, it's, it's being allegorical. It's being poetic about sin and salvation and Christ. But according to the orthodox view, this is what Christ is. Christ for us is not to be feared in that sense of the word, but is, be to, is, is to be revered, is to be yearned for as a physician. I'm a sinner. I, am, I have a fallen nature. My nature is corrupted. The only way he can rescue me from my state is a doctor because I have an illness. That's just the way that we look at it, right? So, you know, like you're talking about how do you sort of, how do you sort of explain to somebody that sin is, um, is a disease, but it's a disease that they've chosen? Again, it's just... It's a, it's a way by which we view salvation. It's not, it's not against the orthodox mind or the orthodox understanding. But, yeah, it's like me saying, it's like me trying to describe, okay, it's like me to, if I've got a jar of honey right now, and I tell you, let's pretend we haven't tasted honey. I tell you, explain, describe to me what, what honey is. What are you going to say? You might say, okay, like you haven't tasted it, but you say, okay, I've heard it's sweet. Yeah. And then um, someone else might say, well, it's brown. 
Is it honey? Yeah, it's brown. <laughs> so you might say, well, okay, it's gold. I'm a little bit colorblind. <laughs> it's brown in my eyes. Well, that's a different look. Okay, so it's a different way of looking at it. I can say it's brown. Mary will say, but it's gold. Again, honey is still honey. And because you and I haven't experienced what honey is, haven't tasted what honey is, we can only describe it in words that we know and words that we can understand. But at the end of the day, unless I know what honey is, I'm only using my limited language, my limited understanding, my, um, my comprehension to explain something that's incomprehensible. Okay? So is your is your um, <laughs> um if we're looking at it in that orthodox perspective, when we're repentant, is repentance a feeling of remorse where you're feeling guilty and bad for something you've done, which kind of takes on that Catholic approach? Or is it just an acknowledgement of um, I'm sick and I need to go back to the healer? Like how do I view my Okay, that's a very good question. Does anybody have anything to say? Yes. It's also a willingness to be healed. So when Christ carries out any act of healing, he says, are you willing to be healed? Mm. So he, he sort of asks for their consent first in that sense. But you, that's what repentance is, is your willingness to go back and to be healed. And in my mind, mm. that's sort of, if we're using words like minister to describe something we don't fully understand, that and remorse become the same thing. Mm. Okay, yeah, so that's a very good answer. I have not much to add to that because that was brilliant. But what I was going to say is the, the um, 
I don't think repentance is something that we can say, yep, this is repentance. We can look at sin and the, the definition of sin in the, in, the, in, the, um, in the Greek, in the New Testament. Sin is actually um, not an attack against God, not an offense against God. Do you know what it actually means, the actual word sin? Separation is how we understand it. Very good. But it's not the word. What does the actual word mean? The actual word, if in, does anybody know? Sorry, did you? Missing the mark, absolutely. So, so it's actually, it's almost like a, um, it's like an archer who aims for a target and, and misses the mark. That's the idea of, that. that's what the word means. So as long as we understand sin as not living up to the, um, the glory of God's expectation of me as a human, that's what sin is. I've missed that mark. I could be, God intended for me to live such a glorious life in unity with him, but I missed the mark by sinning. And then the idea of repentance now is different for person to person. We know that some of the church fathers or some of the saints of the church actually look at repentance as being a life of tears. Their life is tears. They are dwelling on every sin they've committed. And not just that, they are dwelling on on the, the, the notion of sin itself, the notion of separation. And that's, for them, how they return to God. We know other saints that look at separation and look at sin um, and then repent by being, um, by being in a state of sheer joy. Weird way to look at it, but a state of sheer joy in the sense that my repentance, because of Christ's action, my repentance, how could I, how could I weep over my repentance when I have God and his salvation um, and his acts on my behalf? So, they, so that some of these saints live in a state of sheer joy. They are smiling from ear to ear because their idea of repentance is, this is what God's done. So the focus is, for, for one person, the focus is on you know, one's fallenness and how they return to God. And another man's focus could be on God. And then, so the views on God rather than on myself. So, so repentance, I don't think we're repentance. We can look at it and say, if you're not repenting by crying every night, then you're not repenting. Because... The way I view repentance, the way Christ works through me and through the Holy Spirit working through me is different to the way it works through you and through everybody else. So the idea of repentance is different. The idea of um, judgment is even different. Uh, Sorry, not different from person to person. We have an understanding of judgment. But what I was trying to say is, Mina alluded to this earlier, is our understanding of judgment is different to other other church definitions of judgment. And we can look at that. I can't look at it tonight because that's a whole other topic. Perhaps we can look at that because judgment now takes a different form. If sin is, is aiming for God but missing that mark and repentance is, is a lot more complicated than just repent, like crying for your sins, then the orthodox understanding of judgment needs to, um, needs to be properly understood in order for us to get a complete picture of what's going on. Okay? I'm sorry, like, I'm not here to complicate things, but... We can look at that. And actually, that's a beautiful topic to look into. Maybe Father Michael can, can look into that for us. It's a beautiful topic. Right? For the sake of tonight... <laughs> um, sorry, are there any other questions, or should I just keep going? Or do you want to just leave it there for, for tonight? Are we doing well for tonight? Sorry? Okay. All right. So we spoke about salvation in the Orthodox view, and we had a great discussion. And thank you for actually talking and discussing. Fantastic. Um, and we spoke about the death of Christ as a way of healing humanity. Okay? 
So far, so good. Um, now I wanted to focus on this idea of death, of Christ's death. And what does death mean? And why does our church focus so much on death? Uh, our church isn't being pessimistic, right? There's a reason for our focus on Christ's death. And we'll see. In the uh, resurrection fractions, some of the resurrection fractions, and in some of the resurrection, uh, resurrection hymns, we will read, we will um, hear this uh, phrase being repeated over and over again. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. Notice it doesn't say, we're not told, Christ is risen from the, death, uh, uh, from the dead, trampling down death by glorious resurrection. Why death? Why death by death? And I just wanted to look at that concept. Because I, I, personally, it was hard for me to, to grasp that concept because I look at God and I say, Christ is victorious. I don't want to focus on Christ's death. I want to focus on his resurrection. He defeated death. But I, I think focusing on this concept of death by death is quite important for our understanding of, again, for salvation. This is what St. John Chrysostom has to say, and he's focusing on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we read this a lot, um, and you see this a lot around Passion Week and, and around the resurrection. It's one of his homilies um, on, on the resurrection and on, on um, Passion Week. He says, O death, O death, where is thy sting? O hell, where is thy victory? Christ is risen, and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. So his focus is on Christ is risen, Christ is risen, Christ is risen. But what does he start the phrase with? Have you got this in your notes? You do, yeah? Yes. Oh, death, where is thy sting? He's, he's, he's talking about a particular verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In the sense that the Christ, through his death, took away the sting of death. Okay? What does that mean? What does that mean? And um, Father John Bear, who was here um, a little while ago, he was actually um, um, contemplating on this verse and contemplating on this idea of death by death. Um, he did his, his PhD on this, uh, on this very topic, so he's got a lot of knowledge to share. But he focuses on death, and he says, why death? And then he says, he teaches that Christ used the one thing that is inescapable for you and me. We're born into this world, like St. Augustine says, not by our choice, but we're also going to die, and it's not by our choice. We all know that our days here are numbered. You know, it's no surprise, and if it is, I'm sorry to, to, to depress you, but our days are numbered, right? And then it doesn't matter how rich I am. It doesn't matter what nationality I am. Egyptians die too. It doesn't matter, <laughs> it doesn't matter what my attitude to life is, right? Each and every one of us have a um, limited number of days on this earth, right? So, he, so Christ chose death, which is inescapable for humanity from the very first human until, until today, until the second coming. He chose something that we all have to experience. And he used death to conquer death, right? What does that actually mean? It means that Christ turned death inside out. So again, he took away the sting of death, we're told. So that means that rather than me approaching my deathbed and being in agony and being in fear and being anxious and sort of um, not knowing where my life will lead, that was all 
the idea is this is all taken away through our Lord's death, right? This idea of death is what held us captive. This idea of death is what makes us sin even more. I live this sort of Darwinian... Um, that's not good. All right. I live this idea that because I know I'm going to die, I start to think, okay, what do I need to get from this earth? If I know that my time is limited, then I want this money, and I want to work for this, and I want to get that. And it's all about what I can get in my limited time on earth because who knows what's going to happen afterwards. But Christ came, destroyed death, and made death actually an entrance into life. And again, this is where our mindset should change. The problem is, and I'm, I'm the first to admit this for me, is I'm comfortable now. I have a good car, I have a good house, I've got a family, great job, all right job, not bad job. Um, I've got all these things and it's taken up my mind. In the car, I've got my radio on. At work, I'm you know, inundated with things and I'm busy. You know? I'm busy, busy, busy. I don't have time to focus on the next life. But I think this is where we need to start focusing on the next life, right? I wanted to share this account. St. Ignatius, Ignatius of Antioch. On his way to be martyred, so they were going to, they um, arrested St. Ignatius and they were going to take him to be martyred in Rome. And this is, um, so on his, on his way, he started writing letters to the churches to strengthen them and to, to tell them it's going to be okay and, and so forth. Anyway, St. Ignatius, Ignatius, he is word that, um, that some of the church members heard of his imminent death, and so they, they put up, they started to think together, how can we stop this death? How can we prevent our beloved bishop from dying? Right? They were trying to do the honourable thing. Um, and St. Ignatius himself, he, can, he um, admits to even thinking, um, fearing death. And so he, he, he writes this letter and he says to them, whatever I think or whatever I write to you, if it's going to take me away from death, then ignore it. Do not prevent this from happening. And I'll, I just wanted to read to you the passage that he actually says. He says, I'm, sure, I'm not sure if this is in the notes. He says, it is better for me to die in Christ Jesus than to be king over the ends of the earth. I seek him who died for our sake. I desire him who rose for us. And then listen to this part. He says, birth pangs are upon me. Suffer me, my brethren. Hinder me not from living. Do not wish me to die. What do you think he's saying there? Did St. Ignatius get his words wrong? Did he mix up the words as he was writing this letter? Or what is he trying to say? He says, Hinder me not from living. Do not stop me from living. And do not wish me to die. He's totally looking at everything backwards, isn't he? He's on his way to be martyred, to be eaten alive by beasts, by animals. And he says... Please don't stop me from living and, and do not prevent me from dying. You know what's interesting? He says, birth pangs are upon me. Can you see what he's, the image is trying to, to invoke there? What is it? Yeah. He's actually trying to invoke this image of a birth. He's actually saying, birth pangs are upon me. He's about to be born, right? He's saying, I'm about to be born. He's actually, he's actually talking about abortion, right? He's saying, I'm about to be born... If you prevent this death, you're causing my abortion. If you prevent my martyrdom, you're actually going to kill me. He says, do not prevent me from living. 
I want to live. And then he, actually the rest of his letter is, is phenomenal. It's something else. I highly recommend we read it. But see his view? He's saying, I'm, I'm almost there. I'm about to be born. If you take that away from me, what am I left with? So that's how we should be viewing death, right? We should be viewing death as this, not just something to be feared. It's not to be feared. It's the time, it's the moment, it's the consummation of my life with Christ. We live a life with Christ now, but because of our inclination to sin, we swerve and sway and go there and go back and we return to Christ in repentance and then we leave him the very next moment, or I do anyway. And then, so it's, it's a very dynamic life full of troubles, full, full of um, sin because... I tend to lose sight of God. But this is the moment where all of that goes away, and it's just you and Christ. And that's his focus. That's what saying Ignatius is trying to tell us. Why can't I say his name? Okay. So before Christ's death, what happens to man? If someone died before our Lord's salvation, before Christ came down to earth, what would happen? If I died before Christ's salvation, what would happen to my body? Yeah, my, I get buried, you know, and that's where my body resides. What happens to my soul? Okay, it goes to Hades. It goes to a place that's isolated from God, whatever that means. We can look at that as, as well. But it goes to a place where it's isolated from God. It's separated from God, right? Now what happens when Christ came to this earth and when Christ lived um, a life of righteousness, a perfect life, and he died for our sake and he resurrected and so forth? What happens now when I die? Same thing? I know, don't look at me, not when I die. (laughs) Talk about yourself, all right? So what happens when we die? My body enters the ground. My soul is again separated from the body. But this time, it's in a different place. God willing, right? And then what happens after that? What happens at the second coming? What happens at the second coming? Does our, does our body just reside in the ground and that's the end of it? Okay, so what I'm trying to get to is before Christ's salvation, if I died, my body is destroyed, my soul is separated from God. Not a fun place to be. After Christ's salvation, my body, yeah, it's in the ground now, but it won't stay in the ground. My soul belongs to God. And God will bring the two together. My body will be glorified, will rise because of God's um, power and God's um, strength over death, victory over death. And my soul is with God. And so the means of death that, that Satan had prepared for us in the sense that you know, it, was, it was destruction on either side for my body and for my soul, Christ reversed all of that. My body will be glorified, so it will even it will return to a state that it was when it was in union with God, such as it was with Adam and Eve when they were dwelling with God, and my spirit will also dwell with God. Now, how do we view death? It's not so bad, is it? <laughs> not so bad. It's 9.30. Wow, okay, I'm so sorry. <sighs> okay, I will finish up here. What I wanted to go to now is where to from here? Where to from here? I will take two minutes. I'm sorry. 
this is a profound thing for you and I as Christians. We know that death no longer has any sort of sting, as um, as St. Paul tells us, over us. So we now live day in, day out in anticipation for that glorious day, for the anticipation of being born, just like St. Ignatius was telling us, into, into the body of Christ, into the life of Christ. Okay? So what, am I, what must I do now, day in, day out? Okay? I can't recognize, I can't proclaim that salvation is a one, uh, one sort of time event like the Protestant brothers and sisters do. I can't say, ah, oh, this was the moment of my salvation. Can I do that? Why? The moment of my salvation, because they look at, that's the moment where they encountered Christ, that's the, the, the moment they accepted Christ. But for me, the moment of my salvation was at the crucifixion, the moment of my salvation is now, every time I repent and every time I reunite with God. And the moment of my salvation is at the glorious second coming. So we can't look at salvation as being a one-time event in time and in space. No, it's a, it's a progression through my life. That's not taking away from Christ's blood. That's not taking away from Christ's salvific actions, his actions of salvation, his acts of salvation. No, that's actually honoring Christ's blood on that cross, in the sense that Christ paid the ultimate price, and now I am living day in, I should be living, day in, day out, honoring that initial sacrifice, that sacrifice that Christ made. Okay? Um, um, I, won't, I won't take... I, I need to finish up with this, so forgive me. The concept now is that... Um, uh, the, the divine acts of salvation were committed. So the grace was bestowed upon us from God. What's left is for me to, to meet that bargain, to meet my end of the bargain. It's a synergy between divine grace and human what? Human freedom. Okay? That's our understanding. Orthodox salvation is divine grace synergistically combined. Synergistically means that the two work together hand in hand. They work together day in, day out. Our Lord um, did what what he was, what the only thing he could do, St. Athanasius was saying. Now it's time for us to meet, to meet, to honor that blood, to honor that sacrifice by living my life here on earth. What that means is that we live day in, day out as a, in a Christ-centered life. Okay? I won't take up any more time. Um, we know how to live a Christ-centered life through the sacraments, through repentance and confession, but even before then, through baptism, right? Our baptism unites us with Christ through his death, unites us with Christ through a rebirth. We are renewed, um, as, as Christ was telling St. Nicodemus. Um, uh, sorry, as Christ was saying, telling Nicodemus. Um, through... So that was baptism through our renewal, the constant renewal, through our repentance and through our confession. Um, and the Eucharist is, the again, the epicenter of our faith in the sense that that's, that is where I take on Christ. I combine with Christ in body, in spirit, and, and that, again, is fulfilling that life in Christ, right? And what about our actions towards others? Again, that's living that model um, example that Christ has set before us. If I honour you and you honour me, then we are honouring the creation of God. Okay? 
I'm done, I promise. The last thing I wanted to end with, which I think sums up both last week and this week, is this, um, this quote by St. Clement, which I think is beautiful. He talks about what it means to live a perfect life, and this is how he ends up. He says, The rule of, perf- of life for a perfect person is to be in the image and likeness of God. The key word there is be. It's an active word. It's a word where we ought to live by day in, day out. We need to be in the image and likeness of God. Okay? Glory be to God forever and ever. I mean, I am so, so sorry. I did not expect that many questions, and I, and I took a lot longer than I should have. Please forgive me. Um, I just wanted to say, sorry? I, I just wanted to recommend a book. If anybody wants to learn a little bit more about, well, the Incarnation, you have to read this book. It's by St. Athanasius. It's on the Incarnation. I'm sure some of you have already read it. I know people who read this every year without fail. It is one of the most important reads next to the Bible, by far. And if you also want to learn more about our, our understanding of salvation and um, the orthodox view, I can recommend, I think I've got that in the handout, I can recommend a couple of other resources if you wanted to know more. Remember, the idea of, um, of this service is that it's not a youth meeting, it's not just coming and, and learning um, about a particular theme or, or, or something like that. No, it's a, the idea is to delve a little bit deeper to try and discover what our orthodox faith is all about. Um, and that's why we try and compare it to the other faiths as well, so that we get a better understanding of what we, as Orthodox Christians, believe. Thank you so much for your time, and I apologize again for taking so long.